0: Okay, so we are back in the book of Judges here. We are in Judges chapter 12 this morning. Uh, Chapter 10 to 12 of the book of Judges functions as this unit. It's kind of one story being told. So we've spent the last couple weeks already here looking at it, and we're going to button it up uh, this morning with chapter 12. Before we get to look at this great story of Samson, which I'm so stoked about, he was one of my favorite characters when I was a kid. And so looking forward to that, but we've been looking at Judges chapter 10-12, through 12, which is the narrative around this man, Jephthah, a judge of Israel whom God used to set the tribes on the eastern shore of the Jordan, a tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, to set them free from the power of the Am- Ammonites. And, and so Jephthah, as we saw this uh, last week, let me just remind you, he wasn't unwanted, unlikely man to be chosen. Remember, he was uh, the son of a prostitute. He was not wanted amongst his brothers. He was driven out of his family's inheritance. But when Israel was in trouble, when his tribe was in trouble, because he was a mighty man and had people following him, they, they asked him to come and be their leader. And so he came and he led them and freed them from the power of the Ammonites. He was this unlikely unwanted character, and yet God used him, this mighty warrior, to lead the children of Israel to victory. And so we left off in this story in one of the craziest texts in all of the Old Testament where we saw this personal tragedy in his own life that had to do with his family, with his, with, with his own mistake and how it affected his household and his, and his daughter. And so this morning, we're going to zoom back into this story, but instead of focusing on him personally, what happens is this, is that the author of the the book of Judges zooms the text back out, and instead of focusing on this individual man and his personal household, we start to get a bigger sense of what's happening in the nation again at this time, this national focus after the victory of the Ammonites. And here's what happens. Um... Jephthah was of the tribe of Manasseh. He lived in the the city of Gibeon. But after he defeated the Ammonites, one of the other tribes of Israel that lived on the other side of the Jordan River, on the western side, got upset with him that they were not included in the battle and in this victory. And so they came to Jephthah and they threatened to burn down his house. So let's check it out here. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. So this tribe gathers for conflict. They gather for war, the tribe of Ephraim. They cross the Jordan River, and they come and they bring this threat against the judge of Israel, the, the judge Jephthah. Now, this is crazy. This is not like, hey, you're going to lose your position. We're going to fire you <laughs> from your job. No, this is taking it to another. We're going to bring fire down on you. We're going to burn down your house over you. And so Jephthah, yeah, as, let me let me remind you just to get a bit of a background here because there's a lot of interesting kind of stuff going on in the background here. Of course, Jephthah, like I mentioned, was from Gibeon, which was of the half tribe of Manasseh remember this that Manasseh was such a large tribe that they received an inheritance on both sides of the Jordan River half of them settled on the eastern side half of them settled on the western side and there was this long standing rivalry between the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim so here it is it's it's bubbling to the surface once again as Ephraim comes and brings this threat against Jephthah, and his tribe. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim are actually brothers. Like in Scripture, not the 12 sons of Jacob, but they're the two sons of Joseph. Let me just remind you of this. They're the two sons of Joseph, born in Egypt. Remember the tribe of Levi was the tribe of priests, and, and the Lord directed that the tribe of Levi, when they came into the promised land, that Levi was not to receive an inheritance, an allotment of land in the promised, promised land, just like uh, the rest of the tribes were doing. So instead, Jacob said this. He said that Joseph, his son Joseph, would receive a double portion in the land of Israel, which were to be named after his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so these two tribes in this story... Historically, they're, they're brothers, the sons of Joseph, not the sons of Jacob. And there was this great rivalry between them. Remember, let me just take you back to the book of Genesis to get our heads around this a little bit. Remember, remember when Joseph brought his sons to be blessed by his father, Jacob? Jacob, their grandfather, at, in his old age, had become blind, he couldn't see very well. And so Joseph positioned his, his sons in front of their grandfather. Uh, to the right and to the left. Manasseh was the older of the two, so he was placed in front of his grandfather's right hand, and Ephraim was placed in front of his grandfather's left hand so that they could receive his blessing. But when Jacob reached out to bless these two boys, he did this. He crossed his arms, and he set his left hand on Manasseh, and he set his right hand on Ephraim. And and Joseph caught what was going on. He he said, no, my father. He he tried to take Jacob's hands and put the proper hand on the right son. Because the eldest son should have received the blessing of the right hand. But Jacob said, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing. And he said this, "The, the elder will serve the younger. Manasseh will serve Ephraim. And Ephraim received the blessing of the firstborn. Amongst all the tribes of Israel, Ephraim received the blessing of the firstborn. And so, uh, you know, Jacob did this. He, he, he told Joseph, I'll bless Manasseh as well. Manasseh is going to become a great tribe in and of himself. But Ephraim will receive the blessing of the firstborn. So these two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, become two of the largest tribes in the land of Israel. In fact, Manasseh has the biggest portion of land, and Ephraim has the biggest population of people. So these are two of the biggest, you know, power players amongst the tribes of Israel. And between them, there was this rivalry that was rooted in this ancient past, a blessing maybe considered to be stolen or whatever it might be. And so Ephraim, actually, it's interesting that Ephraim has this history of being a complaining tribe. In fact, you might want to just write this down somewhere in the margin of your Bible. It's like interesting to know when you read about Ephraim, you will often find them complaining or acting out in jealousy in the midst of whatever is going on amongst the tribes of Israel. It comes up at other times. You know, we start to get this picture of, of Ephraim that they're constantly complaining, complainers. In fact, this isn't even the first time in the book of Judges this has come up. The first time it came up was with Gideon. Remember when Gideon defeated the Midianites and he chased them off and the two Midianite kings took refuge. They hid amongst the tribe of Ephraim and Ephraim killed them. But then Ephraim came to Gideon and wanted to make war with Gideon. They said, why didn't you include us in the main battle? How come we just got left with mop-up duties? And, And Gideon handled the situation well. He diffused it. And so here they come again. Ephraim comes again. This time they're complaining again that they, haven't, they didn't get to be involved in what was going on. And this time they're not dealing with a diplomatic man like Gideon. This time they've got Jephthah. And instead of congratulating a brother on his victory over the enemy of God's people, should have been a time of celebration, should have been a time of rejoicing, should have been a great time of enjoying the victory and the peace that comes with with God giving his people victory, rejoicing. Instead, in their jealousy, they're ready to kill Jephthah, and they're ready to bring down fire upon his head. You know, it makes me think of Jesus. Because when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, you read in the Gospels that Jesus, during his life and during his ministry, faced the same conflict, this this jealousy, this Attacks from those who were complainers. And Jesus responded, Jesus was dealing with a group similar to Ephraim. They were called the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus went around doing good, went around healing people, went around proclaiming the kingdom of God and announcing salvation, calling people to repentance and faith. And he was unwanted, he was unlikely, and the Pharisees were jealous. Jealous of his ministry, jealous of his popularity. And rather than celebrate what God was doing in the midst of their nation, what did they do? They plotted his death. They planned to murder him. And so just like Ephraim with Jephthah, I think there's a, there's a pattern that we should see. We're, we're being, we've been seeing this throughout the book of Judges. This is important, that with these judges, we see patterns being set that are giving us a picture of the one who is to come, the ultimate judge. The ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior. And and there's this this pattern of rejection here that we see in Jephthah. But I would say this about Jephthah. Jephthah is not Jesus. His response is not going to be how Jesus responds to those who reject him. But let's check it out. Verse 2. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. and When I called you, You did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So here he is. He tells him, he gives him a little bit of response at the threat of them burning down his his home and taking his life. He tells him, I wasn't pursuing glory for my own name. We were involved in a great struggle conflict, a great dispute. And I invited you to come and help us. I called to you to rescue us and you refused. So I took the matter into my own hands, he says. And besides that, it's not my victory. I love that. He says, this, the Lord gave us this victory. This is God's victory. This is not Jephthah's victory. This is the Lord who gave the enemy into my hand. It's his victory. So why are you coming to fight against me? I guess it's important to note that this wasn't just a complaint against Jephthah. This was a threat against his home. This was a threat against his family. We will bring your house down over you in fire. And so this man is going to defend his home. I like that about him. He's going to defend his household against threats. Verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead, and he fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So as things get going here, Ephraim's hurling their insults at Jephthah, calling the Gibeonites, calling them fugitives of Ephraim and Manasseh, which is, remember again, they're brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, these two tribes. But half of Manasseh settled on the eastern shores of the Jordan River. So, so the insult is to say, you're a bunch of deserters, you fugitives. You like turned your back on your brothers and on your own tribe. But we know this, that amongst the tribes of Israel, Moses blessed Reuben and Gad and this half tribe of Manasseh. He gave them the eastern shore of the Jordan River as their inheritance. And, and not only that, this tribe had crossed over ahead of the tribes of Israel in conquering the land of Canaan and help settle them in their inheritance. So these are, these are not fugitives. Let's just get that clear here. This is just cheap insults. It's like calling them a bunch of whips, wimps, you know, snowflakes. So they go to battle, and Jephthah gives them a whooping. Let's check it out. Verse 5, And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the forts of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So again, yeah, Jephthah and his troops just lay a whooping on Ephraim. And, you know, it's funny, even as you read this, it's like uh, sometimes the Bible just, you got to watch for it, but it writes the humor right into the story in unsuspecting ways. And that's exactly how the Holy Spirit leads the, the writer of Judges here. You know, Ephraim, remember Ephraim said to Manasseh, to, to, to Jephthah, you're a bunch of fugitives? It was an insult. But now in verse 5, the defeated survivors of this battle are called fugitives of Ephraim. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit you know, deemed to call them. Look at who's the deserter now. Look at who's running away now. Look at, look at who, who's on the run. And so Jephthah's men capture the fords of the Jordan, where the river could be crossed. The Jordan separated these two tribes, and they, they came up with a plan to identify the Ephraimites, so that no one got away. And it had to do with how they spoke. See, just like in Canada, there can be different, you know, accents on the English language. I'm not gonna, you know, try to imitate a newfi or a French Canadian or anything like that this morning. It wouldn't be that good, anyways. But you know, the English language has plenty of room for accents. Even from BC to Washington State, we know this. I mean, it's just like. The 49th parallel, and you cross from, you know, White Rock down into Blaine, and you will hear different accents. It's like crazy. Well, this was the same amongst the tribes of Israel. So when Jephthah's men captured the Fords of the Jordan, they required anyone who wanted to pass over the Fords of the Jordan to the other side to have a password, to say a password, to say Shibboleth, which means. The crossing, or it means the flowing stream. Let me buy the flowing stream. But the Ephraimites spoke with such an accent that, accent that they struggled to get the H in, that word shibboleth. And instead of shibboleth, they would say sibboleth. It's like, you know, when I went to Kenya a couple years ago. I can't believe it's almost been two years since I was in Kenya. But Eli and I would be hanging out with the teenage boys at the Mercy and Caring Homes. And they would would have a lot of fun with me, and I'd just play along with them. They'd get me to say words in Swahili, and yeah, you know, like it was humorous to them to to listen to this Canadian try to speak words in Swahili, and then they'd laugh at my mispronunciations, and it gave me lots of joy, so, you know, I just played along. I have this American pastor friend, he's from Texas, and uh, every time I'm with him, he always gets me to say, out and about. Say out and about for me. And so I say it for him, out and about, and he, and he giggles away. And then I get him to say it, and I can't hear any difference between how he says it and how I perceive that I'm saying it. Out and about. Shibboleth, Sibboleth. A wrong pronunciation was a dead giveaway. And, and one consonant, one missing consonant, would be the difference between living, and dying. Imagine that, your your future hanging on one word. On how you pronounce one word. And 42,000 men got it wrong, and 42,000 men were betrayed by their accent, and they died for what they said. You know, when Peter betrayed Jesus, he was confronted. He was sitting around a, a fire He was following from a distance while Jesus was in under trial. He was warming himself around this fire and a a young girl who was there heard him speaking there and, and she said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter called down curses on himself. We know this from scripture. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And the little girl said, yeah, but your speech betrays you. You're from Galilee. I can tell by your accent. I can tell by the way that you speak. You know that Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. He said, by your words, you will be justified, or by your words, you will be condemned. Our speech betrays us all the time. But there's one word that allows you to cross over the Jordan. You know, like in the spiritual pictures of the Bible, we, we see that crossing over the Jordan. It's like entering into the life of promise. Leaving the wilderness spiritually to enter the life of promise spiritually. Or Some people have used that picture of crossing the Jordan to be like entering into eternity. It's like moving from this life into eternity, into heaven. And you know, the Bible tells us that there is There there is one word that must be confessed for that crossing over to happen. And it's a word that you have to apply to Jesus. You have to give him a title, a name that belongs to him. You have to confess it, the scripture says, from your heart and from your mouth. And that is this, that Jesus is Lord. You're to call him Lord. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, if you call Jesus anything but Lord, you call him anything but Lord, you're mispronouncing his name. You know, some use his name as a curse. Others say, you know, Jesus is a good man. Others say Jesus was a prophet. Others say Jesus was a good moral teacher whose example we can follow. But I would say to you this morning if that is all Jesus is to you, then I would tell you, you are mispronouncing his name. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And when we come to cross the Jordan, so to speak, the password, that's who we want to call it, Lord. Jesus, I call you Lord. The Bible says that in his name is the power of life and the power of death. That's the picture here. That in his name is the power of life and the power of death. For life, for eternal life, you have to confess, Jesus, your Lord. I confess that you are Lord. To call him Lord means to submit to his authority. It means that he becomes the authority of your life and you choose to follow him. You live for him as Lord rather than living for yourself. And the Bible says this. The Bible says that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you've personally done that, you know, I hope you have. This morning, if you haven't, I'm going to invite you to do that shortly. But if you have personally confessed Jesus as Lord, do you know that that's a miracle? That's a a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. Because no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. It's a miracle. And Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The Father who sent me draws him. See, if you've confessed that Jesus is Lord, it's because the the Father in heaven has drawn you and the Holy Spirit has enabled you. Salvation, it's, it's a gift. It's not something you earned. It's not something you can do on your own. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation, being a morally good person. Your good works, your religious acts, none of it will save you when you come to the Jordan. None of those things will account to allow you to peacefully cross and not lose your life. The Father has to draw you. The Holy Spirit has to enable you so that you can open your mouth and confess Jesus is Lord. And the Bible says if you will confess Jesus is Lord, if you will surrender to his lordship, you will be saved it's a gift. It's a gift from God. And you know, if you've never done that, you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let me encourage you. The the fact that you're like even watching right now and you, you happen to have clicked on in this moment, it means this. The Father is actually drawing you. You're being drawn to hear this this morning. And the Holy Spirit will enable you, if you will submit to him, he will enable you to confess that Jesus is Lord, to repent of your sin and in faith confess Jesus is Lord. And so I want to encourage you this morning, in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, confess Jesus, You are Lord. Words matter. See, that's what this is telling us, this text. That words matter. But as you read this story, what's interesting about this is that there there seems to be this this silence from heaven in the midst of everything that's happening in Judges chapter 12. It's like, where's God in this story? I mean, all this conflict and stuff is going on. Where is God in the midst of this story? It seems like Israel almost in a sense has become its own worst enemy. God almost appears to me to be content in letting the nation destroy itself. It's like he's just lifted his hand and and two tribes are turning on one another. And and it's not going to be the last time we see this in the book of Judges. This time Israel had no king and every man did as he pleased. Now check out verse 7, Jephthah. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in his city in Gilead. That's it, six years. And then we're told here, as this chapter closes, about three consecutive judges that kind of had minor roles. There isn't really much information about these guys. Let's read on. The first one's name is Ibzan. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside of his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside, of his, outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. Ibsen, wow, this guy had a lot of kids. That's the one thing you see about him. And it's interesting because he actually seems to be preoccupied with his children, making sure that they get married off, which is a good thing. A father should be preoccupied with his children. But it almost seems to me as I read this that it's too much. Too much preoccupation with his children. You know, earlier in this book when we came across some of these minor judges, the text tells us, the writer tells us, that they arose, this judge arose to save Israel. It was like a distinguishing factor of all of the minor judges that we've previously read about. They arose to save Israel. But that same report is not given here. Not given about Ibzan, and it's not going to be given about the other two men that we're about to read about. And I just wonder, you know, if this judge was somewhat preoccupied, distracted in his role as a father, preoccupied and focused on his family to the point of disregarding the call of God on his life disregarding his role as a leader and judge amongst the people of God. Look, everyone's got family responsibilities. Everyone does. And those can be tough to manage. But that's not an excuse to ignore the call of God. It's not an excuse to set aside the things of the kingdom and serving the kingdom to to focus on your family and on your children. And I wonder if this guy ignored his calling. Let's read on here. Verse 11. After him, Elon the Zebulunite, judged Israel, and he judged 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulunite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel, a Purithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He judged Israel 8 years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Again, you know, here's these two judges, Elon and Abdon. And, and we're not told that these men arose to save Israel. Somewhat unremarkable, you know. Just Whatever. You know, Abdon's got this huge, massive family again, and, and here's a guy, it's like, he's, it's like he's like ascended to some sort of role like a king amongst the people of Israel with his 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they're all cruising around in style on their donkeys. Is you're real hip if you had a donkey back then. Hip. What kind of word is that? <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting to me that this... Text ends in verse 15 to say that, that he was buried in the hill country of the Amalekites. Amalekites are not amongst the people of God. The Amalekites in Scripture are always a picture of a man's battle against his flesh. And clearly to me, this is telling us something. The, the, these judges were not rising to save Israel. They were serving their own purposes. Maybe there was peace in the land in the midst. of I mean, they're just unremarkable. And it almost seems, as you read, (laughs) I I think you could say this, that there was something normal about life in Israel at that time. It's definitely, you know, the calm before the storm and before Samson's ministry. And it makes me think this, you know, there can be times in God's salvation history when in the purposes of God, it seems like there's not a lot of things happening. There's not a lot going on. Things just seem to be cruising at a certain point. Level and there's not a fl- lot of fluctuation. You know, Zechariah said this, the prophet Zechariah despise not the day of small things. And to me, amongst these judges, as much as I'm critical of them, I would say this it seems that life was somewhat normal under their leadership. Remember that? Remember when life was normal? No COVID concerns, no travel restrictions, no restrictions on church gatherings, no bubbles, no masks. You just did your thing. Remember that? Life was normal. Life was normal. Life happening at that time was just sweet. There was this stability to life. Family life was normal, much as it can be normal. You know, it makes me think, you know, I want to say something about that, that as you read Scripture, you know what we see over and over and over and over again in Scripture? That the stability of normal life is a hallmark of God's blessing and His security throughout history. You know, that we see that, like the Bible paints this picture for us over and over and over Again. That the sign of God's blessing is peace and prosperity in your home and normal life. A house and all of these different things. It is the stability, if, and, and I would say this, if, if stability is the hallmark of His blessing, then we should probably recognize what's going on in our society right now. We should probably recognize what is going on in the world right now. Things are not normal, right? This is a new normal. That's what we're being told. And I just have to say, look at church. That means this. God is up to stuff. He's at work. He is doing things. And I'm quite comfortable saying that on some level, on some level, I believe the Lord has removed blessing. On some level, the the Lord has removed a sense of security and we need to recognize what is going on around us in our nation and in the world and we need to turn our hearts to the Lord. Look at if you're watching with us this morning, you don't know Jesus, you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, you need to know that the Bible paints this picture that there is uh, the blessing of God in security and stability of a nation. And so instability lack of security, norms being changed, it, it means that God's removing a hand of blessing. You need to turn your heart to the Lord. The Lord is seeking to get your attention. He's shaking the definitions of what is normal. And I read this and I see in this text that at this time, no one arose to save Israel. In fact, what's noted about these judges is that they were buried. They were placed in tombs, and their their spots were marked. But just as the Lord sent these judges to deliver the people of Israel, so the Lord has sent His Son to deliver us, to save us, to rescue us. And of note, each of these judges died. They were buried. The location of their burial was marked. Their graves were well marked. And you know, the Bible actually repeats this pattern with Jesus. This is a a pattern that we should catch with regards to the judges. And it's repeated with Jesus. These judges set these patterns so that that when the judge of all judges, the king of all kings, the savior of the world came, we could expect and, and, and look for a pattern to happen through him. And so just like these judges... Jesus died. Just like these judges, his burial location was well known. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea in the city of Jerusalem. Everyone knew it. Those who followed him, they saw where he was laid. With regards to his death, they watched as the stone was rolled in front of that tomb. They saw it rolled in place, but But I would say this, between Jesus and these judges from the book of Judges, these ones that we read about, that's where the similarity ends. That's where it ends. Because though Jesus was dead and buried, he was raised from the dead. He rose from the dead never to die again, and he lives forevermore. And those who confess him as Lord know this, that there is salvation In the name of Jesus. And he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of his father. And church, soon he's coming again. Soon he is coming again. He is coming for those that have confessed him as Lord. Have you confessed him as Lord? Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. In a moment, I'm going to lead you in prayer just to to do that, but before I do, I want to give you four application points. I'm going to do this quick. Four application points from this text. The first one is this. Ask yourself, where am I way too quick to judge other people? Just like the Ephraimites, we could be like that, you know, judging our brothers, quick to make decisions about people's hearts. And maybe this morning you just have been in conflict in your own household, or in your own life, or wherever it is, let me ask you this. Where are you being too quick to judge other people? The second question I want to give you is this. Who should you congratulate on a victory? Or whose victory should you be celebrating? You know, is there someone in your life that has had a great victory lately? And celebrate with them. Rejoice with them. Don't Don't be jealous. Don't complain. Don't murmur under your breath about them. Celebrate on their behalf as someone who loves Jesus, knowing they love Jesus. Celebrate with them. The third thing I would say is this: jealousy and complaining, man, put it to death. Don't be an Ephraimite. Put it to death in your life, like just wherever that is. We all got our areas where we we where we got murmuring and complaining in our hearts, and maybe it's about the government. Maybe it's about something locally in our community. Maybe it's about leadership. Maybe it's about the church. Maybe it's about a brother. Just just put it to death. Put it to death. Because number four, what you say matters. What you say matters, and your speech betrays you. Just what direction is it betraying you? Does it betray you as a follower of Jesus? I hope so. Because the earmark of a follower of Jesus is this, is that they confess Jesus is Lord. So if you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, right now, this morning, I just want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your head with me? We're going to pray. We're going to pray. And we're going to invite Jesus. Lord Jesus, I recognize. Would you pray after me? Lord Jesus, I recognize. No one comes to you unless the Father draws them. And no one can confess you are Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for drawing me. By the Holy Spirit, I confess today, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I surrender to you, to your authority, to your rule. I turn from sin, I repent. I turn in faith to you, and I confess from my heart, with my mouth, Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you prayed that, the Bible says this has happened. You've been saved. You've been saved. In fact, the Bible says heaven rejoices. That there is like a party in heaven when someone comes to faith in Jesus and they confess. It's like a baby being born into a family. It's joy. There's joy in heaven this morning at your salvation. And so, look, if you did that this morning, we'd sure love to know about it. You could get in contact with me or our church. We'd love to just provide you with a Bible and maybe resources to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith. And so God bless you.